once meant to kill is my victory. Well, I have a question for you this morning. I'm not, I'm not real certain that uh, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the appropriate time to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is it that excites you in life? Think about it for a moment. What, what is it that excites you? What, what, uh, hello? I mean, you can answer if you want to. Okay, Jesus, we got the Sunday school answer, we got that one down. Sleep, sleep, that's apparent, obviously, yes. What is it that excites you? What is it that really gets you going? What, what is it that you delight in? Helping others, all, all sorts of answers that we get, all sorts of answers that we can give, uh, Students are thinking fall break. That's what really excites me. That's, that's what gets me going, yeah. In our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we're in chapter 10, and in our passage today, we see what it is that excites the disciples of Jesus, and likewise, we see what it is that excites Jesus himself. 
Now, I want to I give you a little bit of a recap. I want to give you a reminder of what we have already discovered this morning, uh, or excuse me, last week we, when we were looking at this. Last week we were in the opening verses of Luke chapter 10, and I want to just set the stage to remind you of what had happened. Jesus has appointed 72 of his followers, his disciples. We, we spent a great deal of time uh, the past couple of months talking about what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. A, a disciple is a Christian. And so Jesus calls and he appoints these 72 disciples and he sends them out on a mission. He sends them out to go into the areas that he's going to be going into uh, in, a, in just a short period of time. And essentially what he is saying to them is, you go get them ready. You go let them know that I am coming. And they go out with this report and Jesus gave the instructions as to what is supposed to happen there. And it is basically a gospel pre preaching mission as well as a healing mission as well. And Jesus sends them out for the sole purpose of preparing them for when Jesus comes into these cities. Now, this, this stands in, in distinction from what has happened in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 9 at the beginning there, Jesus takes the 12 apostles to, to be differentiated from the bigger group of disciples, but from those 12 apostles that he specifically called out, and he sent those 12 out on a similar type of mission. And so you see kind of the, the, the numbers expanding, a multiplying effect here. As people follow Jesus, He sends them out on a mission for Him. The same thing that He does with us as followers of Jesus Christ. We are commissioned to go on a mission as well in order to share the message of Jesus Christ with people around us. And what Jesus does in Luke chapter 10 is in sending out these 12 is he specifically points out to them their vulnerability in going into the regions in which they are going. If you remember how he describes them, he says in Luke chapter 10 uh, that they are going out as lambs among the wolves. We were reminded last week of what wolves do to lambs. They killed them. They eat them. And so Jesus says, I want you to know, I'm sending you out and you're going to be surrounded by a pack of wolves that want nothing more than to destroy you and stop you in the mission that I have given to you. And so there is great vulnerability in this. And then Jesus tells them, here's what I want you to do. Don't carry your money bag, your knapsack, don't, don't worry about sandals. Go in the urgency of this mission. And essentially what Jesus says to them is, and you trust me you trust my Father to take care of you while you are going on this mission. They are going in great vulnerability and they are going in great weakness. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us to be. I think some of the problem that we in the church in America today have experienced is that we are no longer weak. We're no longer vulnerable in the community in which the Lord has put us. We have the resources to do what needs to be done. And so often we rely merely upon our resources rather than relying upon God to do what only God can do. And the reason I say that is this, and the reason you, or the way you can tell if this is true within your own life as well is this. Do you, when problems come, immediately think of how you can solve problems, or do you take those problems before the Lord 
Lord and say, Lord, I need to know what you can do in this situation. We're no longer weak. And because of that, so often we no longer see the power of God. Jesus says, you're going out, you're weak, you're vulnerable, but here's what I want you to do. And now these 72 have gone out. We don't know how much time has taken place between verse 16 of Luke chapter 10 and verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. We don't know the time frame that we have here, but in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, these disciples come back to give a report to Jesus. How long have they been gone? We don't know. Where all did they go? We don't know exactly. What we do know is that they went with the mission, and there was apparently or uh, supposedly some sort of prescribed place where they were to meet up again, and they meet up together in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, and they come with this report. Jesus meets them okay guys how did it go the 72 verse 17 returned with joy saying lord even the demons are subject to us in your name and he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. The disciples come back with their report to Jesus. And what is the lead story that they present to Jesus after having been sent out on this mission? They come back and they give to Jesus this, this expression of joy and the reason for it. They rejoiced because of their power. In verse 17, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, this is obviously not the totality of the report, we can assume. It would make sense that they wouldn't stop with this, but we know they started with this. This is the focus of what they are saying to Jesus as a result of their mission having been sent out. They come back and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Their very first statement involves the joy that they have experienced because of their ability to have power over the demonic world. Now, just to give you a little bit of a background so we understand this a little bit, we, we are told Isaiah and Ezekiel, both Old Testament prophets, kind of share this in a form for us to understand it. What has happened at some point, we don't know exactly when this happened, but there was a rebellion in heaven against God by a group of angels. The Bible tells us that a third of the angels mounted this mutiny against God and God expelled them from heaven. He kicked them out. And the ringleader of this rebellion is the devil. You see him referenced here in Scripture. These fallen angels consumed with evil and overtaken with evil and operating out of evil. And here you see a third of the heaven having been a third of the, uh, the angels having been cast out of heaven and Satan as the ring leader of this group of these fallen angels. Those, those fallen angels are the demonic forces of which we read about in Scripture. They've always been active. 
You can read through the Old Testament and you, you read stories of their activity in the lives of God's people. You read about it in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. You read much about this because there was an increase in their activity during the life of Jesus in the time of the apostles especially, seeking to stop God's plan of redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why you see so much demonic activity within the Gospel accounts. The, the activity that they had been involved in really ramped up during this time as an attempt to, to stop what God was attempting to do in Jesus. Now, I want to make this clear because sometimes we get our theology more from pop culture and movies and the things like that than we actually do from Scripture. We talk about this battle of good and evil. But I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that there is the dark side of the force and the light side of the force when it comes to Christian theology. I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that there is this cosmic battle between Satan and God and that they are in some way or somehow equal to one another in power. Nothing could be further from the truth. Satan and the demonic forces have no power when that power is compared to the power of God. He has the power of creation. He has complete power. He is omnipotent. The demonic forces are not. They are always subject to him in what he allows them to do. You can go back and read the Old Testament book of Job and you see this. They were unable to do, Satan is unable to do anything that God does not specifically allow him to do. You can think of it much like this. Satan is a loud, boisterous, barking, scary dog. But he is held very tightly by a leash that's in God's hand. He doesn't do anything that God does not allow him to do. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is omnipotent. God is the one who is in control. And these disciples, they go out and they have this ministry of bringing freedom and release from those, for those who have been demon-possessed. And understandably, that brings a lot of joy to them. I mean, that would bring a lot of joy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it bring joy to you if you were able to see someone who was trapped in some sort of demonic activity? It may not be demonic possession. It could be any sort of a, of a lifestyle, uh, anything that is, that is wickedness, anything that is sinful, anything that is against God. Would it not be wonderful for us to just be able to merely speak into that situation and healing and redemption and restoration come for that person? That would bring great joy to us. It should. Understandably, it did. The disciples are overjoyed at the power that they possess over the forces of Satan and his minions. I want to remind you, though, as we talk about this idea of those who are demon-possessed, I think that Satan loves to do this. He, he loves to take us to one of two extremes. Uh, either we just completely reject the idea of, of the demonic within the world, or we spend all of our time thinking about the demonic within the world. Either way, our focus is off of Christ and what He has done for us. John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. We have this victory because of Christ. 
We have this power because of Jesus Christ that we need not fear what Satan can do because as a follower of Jesus Christ, the one who lives within us is more powerful than the one who lives within this world. We belong to him. We live within him. He lives within us. This idea that the disciples are overjoyed about, the fact that the demons are subject to them, is really in stark contrast to something else that you find in Luke chapter 9, just one chapter before. If you remember, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he went up on the mountainside, and there the Bible tells us that he was transfigured before their eyes. All of the deity and the glory that is His shone forth out of His humanity. And Peter, James, and John were overwhelmed at the sight of the holiness and the purity, the majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ. They see Him for who He really is. The Bible tells us that after this incredible encounter, They come down off of the mountain, they step into the valley, and immediately they are confronted by a man there whose son was demon-possessed. We read there that this father comes to Jesus and said, I've implored with your disciples, but they were unable to cast him out. We don't know, again, the time frame between the two encounters, but you know that this had to be running through the backs of their minds. We're doing here what the others could not do in this encounter. And it brought them joy. It would certainly bring joy and excitement into their lives. And, And the disciples had this great joy that they had power over the forces of Satan. And there's a word of connection here. When Jesus even says to them, I saw, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The disciples come along and they said, we've gone out and we've been able to cast out demons from people who were demon-possessed. And Jesus, on the heels of that statement, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What in the world is he talking about? Well, there are really a couple of options, I think. I I think it could stand in reference to God expelling those, uh, those rebellious angels from heaven and casting them out of heaven. And Jesus said, I saw that and I know that His power is limited. I know what that's like. Or I think more likely Jesus is giving a word of confirmation here about what the disciples have discovered. The demons are subject to us and Jesus says, I know. I saw it. I saw it. I saw Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, what I believe Jesus is saying here is quite simply this. As you were going out and you were preaching the message of the gospel, as you were going out and you were pointing people to me, I am seeing Satan fall and I'm seeing his kingdom come undone in the work of redemption in which I'm involved. The work of Jesus Christ brings final destruction of Satan's kingdom, but it's the preaching of the gospel and the reclamation of lost souls that flashes like lightning and shakes the foundation of hell. Think of of a lightning strike. It flashes brilliantly, and then it's gone. 
The picture here, I believe, is of Jesus rejoicing as he saw Satan's kingdom being destroyed, one rescued soul at a time through the ministry of these 72 going out to proclaim the power and the person of Jesus Christ. And one after one, Satan is losing his own people to Jesus Christ. One flash at a time, one soul at a time, one destiny at a time, changed by the grace of God. One lost soul coming in repentance to profess faith in Christ is a blow to the kingdom of Satan. And the joy in which the disciples were celebrating. There's further cause for rejoicing because as Jesus looks at this, He says, not only are these demons subject to you, but I am coming to undo all that that Satan has done in bringing sin and stealing souls. And He takes it even a step further than that. He takes the step beyond just the power that these disciples experience to the protection that He offers them. Look again at verse 19. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Come to a verse like this, and oh my goodness, how misinterpreted this verse has become. Maybe you heard the story of the young preacher who had been invited to preach at a church. He wasn't very familiar with the church, but as young preachers usually are excited to do anything. And so he goes into the church, and while he is getting ready to preach, someone brings a box out, sets it down, and pulls a snake out of it. The young preacher looks at the person there beside of him, and he says, "Uh, Excuse me, where is your back door? To which the man says, I'm sorry, we don't have a back door. To which the young preacher says, where would you like one? Because I'm going to make it for you. Yeah, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The foolishness in which some people live within this. and we, We live in this region where we hear about it from time to time. The snake handling preachers. You you know, it's interesting that nowhere in Scripture do we find any of the apostles or any of the churches taking up snakes or scorpions. Why? Well, because they rightly interpret what Jesus is saying here. The, The only encounter that even comes close is in the book of Acts. At the very last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Paul has been through a shipwreck. He's on the island of Malta. There's a fire that's been started. Paul goes to collect some wood to throw onto the fire. When he does, there is a snake that reaches out and attaches to his hand, a poisonous snake. And all of the people think that Paul must be an especially wicked man because he survived the shipwreck only to be brought to the island and bitten by a snake. Instant karma, they think. And Paul just shakes the snake off and it falls in the fire and they're just watching, waiting to see what happens to him. Nothing happens to him. Why? Well, basically because Paul is a fulfillment of what Jesus has promised in this verse in a very, very specific, literal way. What does Jesus mean when he says that he's given authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you? Quite simply what he means is is this. The most dangerous forces of evil 
whether they be physical, psychological, uh, delusional, whether they be poisonous lies, all of them are brought to heal by the message of Jesus' followers. If you remember, when we see the snake originally in the Word of God, it's given to us back in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan embodied this creature to tempt Adam and Eve into sinful rebellion against God. Scorpions, likewise, are very symbolic of evil itself. But I think there's a very real thing that Jesus means by this. It's quite simply this. There is a protective nature in which you and I live until God determines our work is done. Followers of Christ, we are not granted blanket immunity from anything and everything. We're not granted immunity from forces of nature, from tornadoes, from hurricanes, even from snake bites. It doesn't guarantee the freedom to us to disregard natural disasters in a foolhardy manner of some sort. That's why I have no use for snake handlers, no offense if you've done that or your family has. I've touched one once, and it was something we had here at church, actually, the petting zoo out there, and kind of weirded me out, to be honest with you. Not even a poisonous snake. I, I'm not doing that. The creep factor overwhelms me. My theology will not allow me to do that. What Jesus is saying here is quite simply this. As you and I are out on mission, we need to understand that Jesus will take care of us. Jesus will take care of us. Our harm is under His jurisdiction. And even things thought to be the end will not be the end in the economy of God. Church history is filled with stories of martyrs, those who died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says here, nothing shall hurt you. What, what do we make of this? The fact of the matter is that Satan is incapable of inflicting harm upon the followers of Jesus Christ of bringing persecution or even causing death at his will. If we are to suffer and die for the cause of Christ, it will still be on account of God's design and God's purpose and what it is that God wants to do. And even if we die, it will be a flash of destructive lightning in the kingdom of Satan because as followers of Christ, we will rise again. Just like happened with Jesus. Satan thinks I've won the battle. Jesus is dead. The work is over. And yet three days later, all the foundations and the gates of hell themselves shook with the awesome power of God as Jesus was raised back to life. And His kingdom is eroding, it is crumbling, it is being destroyed as a result of the work of the gospel in human lives today like a flash of lightning when you share the gospel and there are those who come to faith in Christ, Satan loses another soul. Well, I 
like a flash of lightning, he trips even a little bit more. What great rejoicing this brings to the lives of the disciples. Not overtaken by the forces of Satan, protected by the power of God himself. And yet there is more. So much more than just this. Jesus comes along in verse 20 and he says that true disciples should rejoice in the security that God gives to his people. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this that the, sub, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the joy. This, this is the point of true rejoicing here, to rejoice in the salvation that God brings. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is where our victory comes from. This is the source of our power. This is the foundation of our protection that we belong to Him and our names are written in heaven. Have you noticed how we have such a tendency to make the, the temporary things of this world our joy? When our team loses, we lose our joy. When our team wins, we are at the height of rejoicing. Do you see the problem with this? When we rejoice in these transient, in these temporary things, our rejoicing is up and down like a crazy roller coaster. What ends up happening is we begin to worship our own emotions and our own experiences more than we worship who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. So that if it's not exactly our way, we feel no cause for rejoicing. Solid joy is found in the discovery of knowing that God took my name and he wrote it in his book. That I am in his book. That when God flips the pages, he finds my name written in his book. That's the basis of joy. Not that you have power over satanic forces. Not that the demons are subject to you. Not in this experience or that experience. But there is rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. The reason that that brings rejoicing is seen when we counter it with Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If we pause for just a moment and ask the very simple and yet very serious question, is your name written in the book? Is your name written in God's book? Does that not move us? Does that not stir us in some way? Is it not an act of the greatest compassion to ask people to impress upon them the need for their name to be written in the book of life? What greater thing could we possibly do than to remind them that God has a book and your name needs to be written in it? Shouldn't that compel us? 
Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. C.T. Studd, the missionary, said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Should that not motivate us? That God has a book, and there are names that are written in it, and there are names that are not written in it. Those whose names are not written in it are eternally cast into the lake of fire. Here's the great thing about this, your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not dependent upon your achievement, not your wisdom, not your good deeds, not your cleverness. It's written there on the strength of God's amazing grace. And that's what excites Jesus. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord, of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So interesting, when you read verse 21, we, we have three times in the Scriptures that we read of Jesus weeping. There is only one time that we are specifically told of Jesus' rejoicing. And it's right here in Luke chapter 10. And what was the cause of our Lord's joy? It was the conversion of souls. He rejoiced. Why? Because the names are written. The conversion of souls. We read that these things are, are hidden from the wise and understanding that God has revealed them to little children. Makes you want to stop and say, God, that's just like you. Just like you to do something like that. To take that which no one thought was any account and use that for your purpose and your glory. We read the passage earlier this morning. Let me remind you of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We hear much at times made of those in media, in pop culture, in sports, in any number of things, Oh, they've become a Christian. Think how God will use them. (laughs) Friends, God has chosen that which is not to bring glory to Him. God doesn't need an NBA star. God doesn't need an NFL hero. God doesn't need the, the biggest and best actor upon the stage. He needs hearts sold out to Him spreading the message of Jesus Christ. God has chosen what this world considers to be foolishness, that Christ died on the cross for you. And through that, He has confounded the wisdom of the wisest of them all. The real source of joy is in the salvation that God so graciously provides. So our top lady's great hymn, Rock of Ages, resonates so well. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Can we pause? Just ask the simple question today, is your name written in God's book? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? You see, what it is that excites you gives you great insight into where your heart is. Do you get excited about the things that excite Jesus? In that same hour, he rejoiced. He rejoiced because souls were being saved. Is your soul one of those? Beyond that, are you seeking to reach those souls and see Satan further fall into what will ultimately be grand demise at the power of God. Father, this morning we are thankful again. We are thankful to see the power of Jesus Christ, what He has done in providing salvation. Father, I pray for our hearts today that we would rejoice that we would be excited about that which excites Jesus. And that we would be intentional. 
about pointing people to him. Father, forgive us when we let our hearts take off after things that do not have eternal value and align us again with the message of the gospel that we might be consumed with Jesus and that we might seek to win souls for him. We ask this in his name. Amen.